0: to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright. I'm pleased to say I am once more joined by Kathleen Vanderwill.
1: Hi, everyone. Nice to be back.
0: Kathleen was with us on Opera for Everyone for the first time doing Lucia de Lamamore.
1: Oof, one of my favorites forever.
0: <laughs> well, and because she's so wonderful with all things literary, I am so pleased to have her today. Kathleen, what's our opera?
1: we are going to be doing Verterre by Massinet.
0: Jules Massinet, the same composer who did Manon, very popular, and also Centron, also popular, but for a while, probably not these days, Verterre was even more popular among his operas. But before it was a popular opera by Massinet...
1: Yeah, before this opera, it was a well, a literary sensation, one might say. It was from a novel called The Sorrows of Young Werther by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. And it was one of the most famous books in its day that you can possibly imagine. It was kind of the the twilight of its day, <laughs> I think I would call it.
0: Oh, interesting. Well, I, I I always think of it as just this this epitome and early epitome of romanticism. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely is. It's probably the most famous book of German romanticism of a movement that was called the Sturm und Drang movement, meaning storm and stress. So you can tell it's better in German, I
0: think. Yeah, (laughs) just do it in German. It's good.
1: (laughs) Sturm und Drang. I'm sure anyone who speaks German is cringing. But it really ushered in what we now commonly know as the Romantic movement in Europe, which is really characterized by poets like Byron and Shelley and novels like Frankenstein, Jane Eyre was Romantic, Wuthering Heights. But Werther was earlier than all of them. It's originally published in 1774. So it it was really the start of that whole movement.
0: Yeah, that's a period of time that I typically think of as still Enlightenment era. Mm -hmm. But this is marking that transition.
1: Yeah, it is and and we can surely talk about this a lot as we as we move forward, but it's reacting very much against the Enlightenment and commenting on something that you're going to see really come to fruition in, in the French Revolution, where this idea that we want to overthrow this old enlightened world and, well, have a revolution and cut off some heads and be really emotional.
0: <laughs> I think we want to just get in touch with our feelings, don't we? I,
1: I think that that's exactly what Verter <laughs> wanted to do. Well, he's the, he's the prototypical
0: tortured artist who mm-hmm. is enjoying all of the feelings that he's feeling, in a way, or or certainly giving them great importance.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that characterizes romanticism, primarily for men involved, is the feeling that they now have permission, in a way, to talk about their feelings, mm-hmm. that they can vocalize their emotions, that this is the first time you really see that in literature. And Verter is that's part of what made him so popular with young men, especially. Men were obsessed with this book. They dressed like Verter. There was a perfume called L'eau de Verter oh, that no. men would buy and use. I wonder. I wonder what the scent was. <laughs> I don't, you though. Um, his his particular at one point in the novel, it's described what he's wearing. And men started dressing like that. And Goethe actually would see men on the street that were dressed like his hero, Werther. It's it's just something you'd never seen before in literary production. All of a sudden you have, well, you have swag. It's as if you could <laughs> walk into Hot Topic and buy your Twilight outfit. It's, it's the same impulse, uh, which I find fascinating. Cosplay. It's cosplay. Cosplay as the suicidal Werther. Oh.
0: Spoiler? No, no. There's no spoilers in opera.
1: (laughs) Can you spoil something that was written in 1774?
0: (laughs) Well, we're not expecting everyone listening to this to know the story intimately. And we will talk more about the novel as well as the opera as we go along. But shall we meet our first few characters? Absolutely. The opera opens with a domestic scene, really. A father and his children, and it may be July, but he's rehearsing some Christmas carols with them.
1: Yes, not really sure, you know, why they're doing that, but they are singing together. This father has, well, he has eight children. They're very much like the Von Trapps, in a way. Eight children. They're all singing together very sweetly. You don't really need to know anything about any of the children, except for the two oldest, Sophie and Charlotte. But yes, it's this very beautiful domestic opening, which I think is is a really important thing in this novel, this tension between this domestic quiet life and the turbulent passion of the poetry of Werther. So we have the father and his children, and are Sophie and Charlotte Char- in this Charlotte scene? Charlotte is, she's getting dressed for the ball, but Sophie is in this in this scene.
0: The two, the two oldest children, mm-hmm. two girls.
2: Assez, assez, m'écoutera-t-on cette fois? Recommençons, recommençons. Pas trop de voix, pas trop de voix. Noël, 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 chérie, 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 Mais non, ce n'est pas ça. Non, non, ce n'est pas ça. Osez-vous chanter de la sorte quand votre sœur Charlotte est là Elle doit tout entendre au travers de la... Oh, pour les enfants Bravo pour le couplet Bonne chute, je chute Et même j'y pense Vous chantez Noël en juillet Bah c'est s'y prendra l'avance Ha <rire> ha Well, those children's voices
0: were lovely as they're rehearsing their Christmas carol in July. (laughs)
2: Yes, they're going to be
0: so, so prepared. But after the children are done singing, we hear some adult men.
1: Yes, so we have these two characters, Johann and Schmidt, very German names, who are uh, friends of the bailiff, the children's father, sort of drinking buddies that come in to sort of say hello.
0: Well, that's fun. Is as I watched them I was <laughs> I was reminded of Pumba and Timon. They're they're kind I of a that's little that's set that's who comment on the action that's going on and I think they, they help fill in some of the story as mm-hmm. as this opera progresses.
1: Yes, they're they're exposition Muppets, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I like that. <laughs> so
0: Besides commenting on the fact that here's this father rehearsing his children for their Christmas carols in July, they also chat about other people in the town, and they bring up a name which we're ready to hear because it's the title of our opera, <laughs> Verter.
1: Yes, they, um, they give us an idea of of, the, of who we're about to expect, that Verter is, is coming very soon to the house, that he is a, a young poet who lives nearby, and that he is going to take Charlotta to the ball, even though he has never met her before this, this point.
0: And the first thing they say about him is that he seems less dreary than usual, <laughs> which I think is a pretty interesting way to introduce a character.
1: It's true. I, I mean, Verter is, I would say, known for his melancholy persona. Um, but it's, it's clear that that has kind of spread throughout the whole town, that he's kind of a melancholy, romantic Byronic poet.
0: A little early to call him Byronic, isn't it?
1: Uh, yes, you're right. He does proceed Byronic, but I would say Massenet could call him Byronic.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: But they're not necessarily
0: down on Werther. They say some quite nice things about him, don't they?
1: Yes, it's true. Well, they, they talk about the fact that the prince, I believe, might be about to appoint him as an ambassador. So there's an idea that he he's not an unknown entity. He's maybe perhaps a good poet. In the novel, he's a, an artist rather than a poet mm. and and seems to be quite good at, at that. So I think he's he's more sort of like, oh, yeah, he's kind of our slightly eccentric neighbor, but said in a kind of affectionate way.
0: Right, and a little bit of the town gossip. He might become a diplomat, who knows. And, uh, and they talk about another young man in the town, don't they?
1: Yes, so they, they mention a couple lines later that Albert, another character we've yet to meet, is Charlotta's fiance, who is out of town for an extended period of time. In the book, he's been out of town for six months. So he's been away for for quite a while. The novel has him he's clearing up some estates, some inheritance, so he's out looking after his financial interests. And he and Charlotta have been engaged pretty much ever since her mother died, which is um, something we'll we'll learn more about later. But he's a he's a good he's a good boy. He's talked about as a an upstanding young gentleman.
0: Fine, trustworthy lad is what my libretto calls him, <laughs> a model husband for Charlotte. Lucky so. girl. <laughs> Yes, lucky girl. Well, we haven't met her yet, but but these two are, are so funny because besides providing backstory and a little gossip about the characters we're going to meet soon, they also, at a moment's notice, are ready to to clink glasses and mm-hmm. sing praises to Bacchus and provide us with little bits of a drinking song.
1: Yeah, exactly. They I guess you might consider them if this were a Shakespeare play. they're kind of that rude mechanical comic relief character that kind of comes in in the middle of the tragedy and says oh you know let's let's lighten things up a little bit so that that's kind of the function that they they serve throughout the piece
0: right and also I think it lets us know that this man who seems a little eccentric and certainly bereaved because the the wife Mm -hmm. is gone he's got buddies he's got pals
1: yeah this is true and and later on his his daughters really encourage him to to go out and drink with them and have a good time and not just kind of stay inside and with his eight children and, and his grief. That's right.
0: Well, we mentioned Verter, and I think it's about time for him to come
1: on the scene. Yes, I want to hear some more from that man. <laughs> Let's do it.
2: Et ce coin sombre, c'est la source limpide de la fraîcheur.
0: Today's opera is Massenet's Werther, based on the work by Goethe. And this is a romantic fellow. When we first meet him, he is true to expectations. He is looking at the trees, looking at the earth, and just singing the praises of nature. Mm -hmm. He's a true romantic poet. And doing it in somewhat poetical terms, I believe.
1: He definitely is. Uh, You know, one of the things that characterizes this novel and characterizes romanticism is, I think a good example is when people used to paint before romanticism, they would make sure that if they were painting a nature scene, everything was perfectly balanced. So even if there wasn't a tree there, they would put it there because that, you know, it was balanced or they'd take out something they thought was ugly. Whereas (laughs) romantic painters decided, no, what nature has created is beautiful on its own even if it looks ruined or messy or it's not balanced Um, and he talks about this a lot in the novel that he starts to see the world through these different eyes not through classical ideals but through the ruggedness and the wildness of nature and i think this this song is sort of an expression of that philosophy that nature as it is rather than carefully groomed by man is is beautiful
0: right and he references the hedges and the flowers and the (laughs) sunshine and the the light breeze that blows and then oh he hears something what we just heard at the end those beautiful children's voices once again
1: Uh uh-huh he is very charmed by the domesticity of the children oh the
0: children and he just he he is enraptured by it he sees something very true in the mm-hmm. innocence of children, which, mm-hmm. honestly, we all do some point or another. But he, he wraps this all together in his romantic vision of this scene of place and people. Mm-hmm. Dear little children, their days are full of faith. As our life is bitter, their souls are filled with light.
1: Yeah, I think he envies their innocence in a way, too. We don't know a whole lot about Werther in the opera before he came to this place, but in the novel... He's he's really run away to where he is now. He's hiding out. This is not his home. And there's some some hints that he has run away from tragedy. A young woman who perhaps wanted to marry him, who sort of died tragically. There's all these hints of people that he perhaps left behind in a tragic state. And and in fact the novel is is epistolary, so the whole thing is is his letters to a friend of his that are all collected together. And the friend is always sort of encouraging him, you need to cheer up, you need to rest, you need to get over your sorrows in this town. And I think that we see that reflected here that he he envies the children sort of their innocence and, and their happiness in that innocence. That's so
0: interesting. So I did not read the book, so thank you for doing that. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, I enjoyed it. <laughs> we are first introduced in the opera here. We're first introduced to him through the eyes of our, our two characters, Schmidt and Johann, who just say, oh, he's less gloomy than usual at the moment. And we meet him not particularly gloomy, but certainly observant, introspective, like be trying to be introspective, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not gonna be carried away by frivolities. He's just, he's like really thinking hard about the smells and the sights and the sounds around him,
3: I think. Mm.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. Introspective, I think, is the perfect way to describe the way he is right now.
0: And then another character comes on the scene. Charlotte. Yes. The yes. eldest child of this family. And in the this, in this story, she is our 20-year-old young woman. And she's been playing the mother to this family because their mother has died. Mm-hmm. She's the eldest daughter of this, the bailiff, the mayor of this town. And... The moment Werther sees her, it's like the whole world stopped moving for him.
1: Yeah, he's just lost in a minute. <laughs> yeah, Charlotta, I find it fascinating, this moment where he falls in love with her, because he falls in love with her in the same way, I think, that he finds the children charming. It's all the same picture that he loves she's just another part of that picture I think he sees the domesticity and the way she is towards the children she often refers to them as her children even though they're her brothers and sisters and he's really really initially attracted to that aspect of her personality that she's domestic and maternal and there's this beautiful innocent domestic scene that he wants to be a part of right because the maternal
0: image that he's being so charmed by, is watching her take care of these children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And by the way, she's doing it in a glamorous ball gown because she's getting ready (laughs) to go to a ball. So, I mean, he's got it all, right? The taking care of the children sweetly, but then totally dolled up for a night out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit, too, of her as a Cinderella image here, where she never really gets to go out. She doesn't really go out that often because she's always taking care of the family. And this is her moment where she dresses up in a beautiful gown, but she doesn't lose that domestic maternal aspect to her. She makes sure she takes care of the children first before she goes and has her fun. And I think he likes that about her.
0: (laughs) Very much so. And there's there's a, a number here that we could play where she does that. totally in love with Charlotte. And it's not the classic falling in love of two adults meeting, having something in common and realizing they were meant for each other. She's not really even paying any attention to him. She's going about her responsibilities of taking care mm-hmm. of the children, looking glamorous, being ready for this ball. And he just sees her as this image of perfection. He, he calls her in the song that we just heard, Oh, perfect picture of love and innocence.
1: <laughs> I would say in this scene, more than anything, she really represents what more recent feminist historians have called the angel in the house, that she's this Victorian ideal woman. This is pre-Victorian, obviously, but um, but we're, we're getting close <laughs> to that yeah. mindset. This idea that the angel in the house is the perfect homemaker, but also the perfect wife. So the idea of taking care of your children while in a ball gown. <laughs> Or in a more sort of 1950s version, looking absolutely perfect in your, your girdle and your little apron, but also making sure that all the food is on the table and everything's perfect. It's this idea of woman being able to do both, look beautiful and be very domestic and perfect. But
0: No wonder he's smitten.
1: <laughs> I know, right, the <laughs> perfect woman. Uh, but as to anything else about her personality, no, he does not know. The first thing about her, really. No. She's pretty and she takes care of the kids. Right. That's that's she's what he just... knows
0: at this point. But he's not just there to spy on her. He's there <laughs> to take her to the
1: ball. It's which is true. interesting. Because How convenient.
0: She's, she's engaged to be married to this Albert. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, so she couldn't go to the ball by herself at this time period, of course, so she Verter has been asked to escort her. It's a little bit clearer in the novel where they have some mutual friends who bring them together as, oh, you know, I, you need a partner and I have a friend who needs a partner type of idea. This would um, be
0: convenient.
1: Right. <laughs> 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 Accidental matchmaking. Yeah, um, <laughs> But yeah, so, so they are kind of thrown together at a ball, which, as we all know, if we've ever... Red Jane Austen is where people fall in love. Cinderella. I mean yes. the list goes on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Although we don't really get to see this ball, do we?
1: Which is so strange. When I was watching this, I kept waiting for the ball to happen. <laughs> uh, you don't. It all there's a lot of there's a lot that happens off stage in this opera, which I think is is kind of unusual. I would not have thought an opera would have missed a chance to show you a scene in a ballroom but this one this one gives it up so you really move from them leaving together to go to the ball to them coming back and then right. we kind of get to fill in the blanks.
0: Well I don't know if this is the reason but when Massenet first put this together he pitched it to the opera comique not mm-hmm. the not the grand opera in Paris where It's obligatory to have five acts and a ballet and a big (laughs) chorus and all these there's a lot of uh, obligatory elements if you go to the grand opera house but it's not quite as strict in the opera comique and that doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily mean it's it's comic but it doesn't have necessarily the gravitas and the heaviness and the expectations when he pitched this opera to them when he presented them they said "Uh, no thank you this is (laughs) A little, too, a little too dark, a little too gloomy for us. So that 1892 premiere that this opera had was in Geneva, arguably more friendly territory for a Goethe story.
1: And am I right? Did it premiere in German or in French?
0: Yes, they translated it into German for the How premiere. Fascinating. Yeah, it, it, it premieres later in Paris, but still in its initial playings in Paris, it was mm. not as successful. It was not as typical of what French audiences were expecting. It had mm-hmm. been successful in Geneva and in the United States before it gained success in the home country of Massenet, France. It does ultimately become successful there, but it, it takes some time.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, and this is something I, I was thinking about the t- the whole time I was reading the novel. It's really interesting that the source material is this pre-romantic source material from over a hundred years earlier, because when Massonet is actually premiering this, this is the very end of the Romantic movement. I mean, most people date it 1800 to 1890, and so this is very late Romantic. So there's a lot of the ideals, I think, of the source material that are almost out of date at that time, almost too, too romantic. We're moving towards realism in literature and in art. Right, the great Verismo operas are actually being... Yeah. Yeah,
0: and some, some people would criticize Messinais as being a little old-fashioned, but it's a splendid opera, and it's the music is so beautiful. It is beautiful. But it is interesting to take this work, the Goethe work, from the early mm-hmm. part of the Romantic period, and then we've got this opera later on, Towards the end of you know kind of those yeah. bookends Book to that period,
1: yeah, it, it's true, and I find it fascinating too because Goethe himself really ended up disowning this work in a way. <laughs> so well, he, Goethe, what
0: was he was like twenty three when he wrote it? He was right? twenty
1: four. He wrote 24. it in six weeks straight through, as if possessed, and it made, it was his first novel, and it made it an absolute sensation, an absolute star. Napoleon read it ten times and oh. personally met with him to tell him how much he loved it, and. Goethe came to just loathe it because he's he's sort of much of what he wrote later on in his life was very different and he saw this as as old-fashioned by the time that he was more of an established writer but this is the thing that people knew him for for almost his entire life and he really kind of regretted that I
0: think. Right and it's also worth noting that Goethe was more than a a novelist, or a poet, or even a playwright. He was also very deep into the natural sciences. Absolutely. Spent a lot of time with Humboldt, mm-hmm. and he was a diplomat, a civil servant. Mm-hmm. He just he had so many interests, and he it was that he and Schiller. Worked mm-hmm. together were were these prime movers of this period called Weimar Classicism, mm-hmm. this early Romantic period, pre-Romantic period, where they're they're kind of working between Enlightenment ideals and Romantic mm-hmm. ideals at the end of the 18th century. An interesting, an interesting fellow, Goethe.
1: Uh, very interesting. It, it's it's kind of as if you had become you know a famous biologist, but everyone remembered you for the poetry you wrote in ninth grade. You know, right.
0: Right, right. No, is, it he actually reminded yeah. me a little bit of Thomas Jefferson in terms of all of the different things mm-hmm. that he had going on. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. His work, Sorrows of the Young Werther, as you said, was such a sensation and it wasn't Massenet who first thought, aha, let's make this into an opera. There were multiple operas made of it. His is
1: just the most successful and long lasting. So while Charlotta and Werther have gone off to the ball to have a wonderful time and perhaps fall in love, well, someone is about to come back into town. Albert, her fiancé, of course, conveniently arrives back at the house right after she's left and is greeted by Sophie, the younger sister, who's about 15. So we're about to see see their greeting and then Albert's talking about his feelings for his fiancé. And uh, does little sister give the game away? Uh, no, she she covers for her sister quite well. <laughs> she um, it kind of depends on your interpretation here. Albert is a little bit confused by the fact that his fiance is not where he expected her to be home. Because that's where she always is. <laughs> right? She's the angel of the house. Why would she not? Why would she be out enjoying herself? But Sophie assures him that she never does that. She doesn't go out. She hasn't been running around behind your back. This just just this one time she went out to have fun. And then that, that consoles Albert. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not too suspicious, is he? No, Albert's a good guy. What people said of him is correct. He's he is a good guy. Okay, let's meet Albert.
2: <laughs> Suis-moi, petite sœur, bonjour. Que Charlotte sera contente de te revoir. Elle est ici. Non, pas ce soir. Elle, qui jamais ne s'absente. Aussi, pourquoi n'as-tu pas prévenu? J'ai voulu vous surprendre Car mon tel loin Il m'est tard de Si de moi l'on s'est souvenu Car c'est bien long si mois d'absence Chez nous, aux absents, chaque mois. Oh, cher enfant, et que s'est-il passé Rien. On s'est occupé de votre mariage. Notre mariage. On y dansera. Dis. On oh, est à votre âge. Oui, je veux que pour tous il y ait du bonheur. J'en ai tant au fond. Et qu'on apprenne mon retour. Non de rien, je serai près d'elle et le.
0: to opera for everyone and this is Werther by Jules Massonet. and we've just met Charlotte's intended and he's been talking with Sophie about his love for his future wife Sophie being her sister and we're going to cut to a new scene within the first act where the ball has happened and uh, gentlemanly Verter is walking Charlotte home and they're going to uh, express some of their feelings together Kathleen what
1: are those feelings? <laughs> well it's not hard to guess what Verter's feelings are ever because he, he tells does not us. hide them <laughs> Yes, it feels like all of romanticism is just men desperately wanting to tell us what their feelings are finally. <laughs>
0: tell me how you feel about
1: romanticism. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I love it. I do. But okay. but Verter he just gets, he, he overshares a little bit, in my opinion. Um, so yes, he, he expresses his love. I know, I'm such a cynic these days. He expresses his love for Charlotta. Whatever started when he was watching her feed the children has yes. just redoubled when he danced with her at the ball. In the novel he he waltzes with her. So, you know, a waltz would be considered at during that time period, a waltz would be a little bit scandalous, to be honest. That's you have to hold the lady very close. So, yeah, some sparks flew at the ball. And so that's, they have, that's why the
0: men had to wear gloves, isn't it? So they didn't get their yes? sweaty hands all over your beautiful dress.
1: Well, that and to touch skin to skin, my goodness, that would be you yes. know, you'd have to get married then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I don't think Vertre would mind, but Charlotte that's has true. other arrangements in store yeah, for her. Charlotte's a little
1: busy, so Charlotte, Charlotta, is going to be a little bit more reticent. She's as a character, especially in in Act One and Two, she's much closer with her feelings because she feels this intense sense of duty. She does have a fiance. She's not going to just throw her fiance away. That's not that's not her character, even if she is charmed by Vertre. But Verter will do some expressing of, of all those feelings.
0: So Charlotte is a little closer with her feelings. And at one point she even says, you know nothing about me. Yeah, which is correct. <laughs> it's correct, but, but he thinks he the details are irrelevant because his mm-hmm. soul has recognized her soul. Yes, exactly. And that's where the, the truth is for him. And he even calls her, remember you, you talk, talked about the angel of the household, mm-hmm. he, he
1: calls her a dutiful angel.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, it's it's kind of a perfect, if you're a feminist historian, this is <laughs> a perfect line for you. <laughs> yes, I mean, he. that's how he sees her is, is, as I said before, her attention to duty. So he's put himself in a bind here, because her yeah. attention to duty is part of what he loves about her. But it's also part of why she can't be with him. That's that's
0: interesting, because mm-hmm. she's been duty-bound. Her mother dies. There are all these children. She, she instantly has to step into that. Like it or not, she has to step into that role, and she seems to embrace it
3: mm-hmm. willingly. Mm-hmm. She's yeah.
0: happy to care for the children. She loves them.
1: It's true, and, and it doesn't seem... She doesn't seem unhappy with her relationship with Albert either. I mean, we haven't seen them together yet, but he's a good guy, and I think that it's clear. It's it's not like she doesn't like Albert. It's more just well, this other guy comes around and he's a little dangerous, and he's very romantic, and he makes her feel very romantic, and she's sort of swayed by that, but not swayed enough at this point.
2: But you don't know about me. Mon âme a reconnu votre âme, Charlotte, et je vous ai lu assez pour savoir quelle femme vous êtes. Vous vous connaissez. Vous êtes la meilleure. est que j'en appelle à que vous nommez vos enfants. Grâce, oui, <t'en>
0: act one we hear off in the distance Albert is back Albert is back and that snaps her back mm-hmm. to reality
1: it's true her character and part of why he loves her is that she is not going to jilt her fiance for a man she just met that's not in her character and I think one of the central tensions of the opera as it develops is that in order for Verter to possess her he has to destroy some of the things that make her the person he loves because he has to convince her to go against her vows, and that really breaks down some of the reasons why he's initially attracted to her.
0: Right, and here's where we, we learn of this vow, because when they say, Albert is coming, Werther says, Albert, who's Albert? <laughs> and she says, well, he's the one my mother made me swear to accept as my husband. God is my witness that for a moment, by your side, I had forgotten that promise. But I'm <laughs> reminded Albert. of it now, so. <laughs> I mean, but well, poor Verter, He thought he mm. was making progress. Well, yeah, she may be promised to marry someone soon, mm-hmm. but she hasn't married them yet. But as you say, he loves her sense of duty, and when he hears that she has sworn this promise to her now deceased mother, it, he just knows it's not gonna, yeah, not gonna work for him.
1: Right. He's he knows that this is this is gonna be a tragedy rather than than a than a light romantic comedy. <laughs> That's right, and right here at the end
0: of Act One, when he learns of this promise, he says, "Well, you—you you must stay true to that promise, and as for me, I shall die of it, Charlotte." Oh, oh. well. Well, so you know, you can just leave after Act One. There's the I opera. I know.
1: There it is, indeed. <laughs> um, and you know, you know, one last last point on that, which I think is really important, is that um, we haven't really talked about the way in which Verter's emotions impact the people around him but it is quite manipulative to tell the woman that you love that you're gonna die because of her (laughs) and this is (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) and he means in, I it's think his he, Hail Mary <laughs> he means well in a way like he, he's not saying it I think to manipulate her I think it's just an expression of his emotions but throughout he's the opera he will his
0: feelings yes but throughout <laughs> the
1: opera he will do this several times where he kind of threatens suicide because of her actions and, and this is sort of the first hint that that having unguarded and unregulated emotions can hurt the people that you love
0: yes Well, I think it's time for Act Two.
2: Bacchus Emper Vivat C'est dimanche Vivat, Bacchus Emper Vivat C'est dimanche
0: begins in the town square right near the church and our two characters that we've come to adore Schmidt and Johann, Timon and Pumbaa. Timon and Pumbaa. They are what did you call them explaining explaining Muppets? No what did you call uh, them? Exposition Muppets. Our two exposition Muppets have a, a glass in hand each because they're always singing praises to Bacchus, Viva uh-huh. Bacchus. And they let us know it's Sunday. We're outside the church. Everyone's making their way into church. We find out that they're getting ready to celebrate the Mm -hmm. 50th wedding anniversary of the pastor. And they say, yes, it's Sunday, but here we are drinking. I'm paraphrasing now. (laughs) Here we are drinking because some people might celebrate God by going to church. So that's fine for them. Uh, We're going to celebrate God by, by celebrating one of his creations wine <laughs> they're a happy couple of guys really it's true
1: <laughs> yeah it's um they're their' sort of cry of vivat Bacchus um, semper viva throughout act one and two is, is kind of interesting because it it does tie into this just let it all hang loose kind oh, of yeah. mentality that that Verter I think I think Verter would like raise a glass with them if he weren't so depressed to be honest <laughs> <laughs> I think that the philosophy he would understand. I think that's more, that's more along his lines than, than going to the 50th wedding anniversary of the pastor.
0: Well, yeah, and they also just spare a moment to think about marriage in general. Well, they're like, 50 years of marriage? Oof. I guess the pastor can do it, but really, who else could? <laughs> Is there... God that's sustains true. him. They, they let us know. Then we have a moment of domestic interaction between our young married couple, also, offstage, the wedding has taken place. Some time has passed. Albert and Charlotte are married, mm-hmm. and we have a little interaction between the two of them. What's what's married life like for those two?
1: They seem to be really enjoying it. I would say not in the way that perhaps Verter would talk about love, but Albert and Charlotte clearly have a lot of affection for each other. They've been married three months, and I think they have a fairly stable happy relationship. Do you think that's because Charlotte is so dutiful? Yes, I do. I mean, I think I think there are always two sides to Charlotte, and one is that dutiful side where she's really become her mother. She We never really see Charlotte as a girl. We see Charlotte as the reincarnated mother, basically, for that family. And I think that role is the same role she's playing with Albert. It's very dutiful to dress up in your Sunday best and go celebrate the the 50th wedding anniversary of the pastor of the town. It's not super exciting, but it's dutiful, and it's what you do when you're married to an important man. But I think the other side of her is really represented by by her passion for Werther, obviously, which is this poetic side that isn't about duty, that's about the only duty is to your own feelings. So I, I I don't think either side is not her. I think they're both part of who she is, but right now she's really only expressing the one side of her.
0: Yeah, and in this scene, Albert even asks her, have I made you a woman with regrets? Hmm. Or, did you have enough time to be a girl? Yeah. Or are it, you a woman with regrets? And and how does she
1: respond? She's not going to tell him if she has regrets because that's just not their relationship in a way. Well, there's
0: no point to it. They're yeah. Married, right? They right. Just...
1: Like, what is she going to do? Say, oh, yeah, I'm I'm actually not happy with you. <laughs> you know, that's just not their relationship, really. Well, and
0: I think she does what... It's kind of we all do if if we've got our head screwed on straight mm-hmm. when there maybe is something you're thinking but you know it's not going to be helpful you say something which is also true which she basically says you're a great guy Albert
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's what everybody always says about Albert he's a great guy <laughs> yeah he is and and he
0: takes it as words of affirmation
1: but I think it's I think it's very fair for him to and in fact kind of perceptive of Albert to ask that question of her of did she have the time to be a girl because I think the answer is probably clearly no that she didn't you know there's a kind of grand tradition in Victorian literature of marrying very young girls to much older men Dickens likes to do this quite frequently this is the plot of Jane Eyre but Albert is not that much older she's twenty, and he's 25 it's true but I would say mentally (laughs) he's sort of he's very clearly an adult And Verter is very clearly still a young man. He's a youth in a way, in in the way that he acts. And I, I think while it's true that their age is not that different in reality, she is still very young. She's 20. And I think that she's kind of jumped immediately from the world of girlhood into the world of being an adult. And Verter very much pulls her in the opposite direction, which... Is understandable that she might be drawn to that.
0: And speaking of Verter, yeah. as there's this little interaction between husband and wife, who should be watching?
1: Uh, is the yeah Verter does a lot of uh, watching people in this play, in this opera. Better to have your your introspection and, and
0: <laughs> your opinions and feelings about what's going on.
1: Yes, Verter is, is, is watching their interaction. And it's, of course, a, a dagger. In his heart, that he is not the husband that she is talking to.
0: Yeah. So let's listen to all of this. Let's listen to Albert and Charlotte, and then also Verter and how he reacts to witnessing the scene between the two of them. Listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co host
1: Kathleen Vandewell. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. K-H-O-L is Wyoming's only community radio station.
0: If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you go, you can find a rich trove of past episodes.
1: Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up.
0: To the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, and I am joined by
1: My name is Kathleen Vanderwill. Oh, Kathleen
0: is such a treasure to have with us. <laughs> she is she is my literary go-to, and this is an opera based on a literary
1: source. Yes, by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. The sorrows of young Werther.
0: Massines Verter. And we didn't quite get all the music in at the end of the first <laughs> half that I promised so I apologize but we're gonna play Verter's response to seeing this domestic scene between Charlotte his beloved and Albert her husband and all of the emotions that he is dealing with watching her with another man we're gonna hear it now and then we'll be back into our usual mid-show elements <laughs> Thank you we've had a chance to listen to Werther and all of his emotions. We're going to take a moment to let you know who we're listening to. This recording of Werther was made in 1998 in London with the London Symphony Orchestra. Antonio Papano is a conductor. Werther is sung by Roberto Alagna, Charlotte, Angela Georgiou, Albert Thomas Hampson, and Sophie was sung by Patricia Pettibon with Jean-Philippe Corti as the father of the two girls. So this is the time when we typically do our opera helmet quiz, <laughs> in which I usually quiz Keely on bringing us up to date on what we've covered in the first half. But we're going we're gonna to take a shortcut here since you're our attentive expert, Kathleen, and you're just going <laughs> to real quickly recap what's going on so far in our
1: story. Sure, I can do that. So, this is the story of a family of which Charlotta and Sophie are the two eldest daughters. And uh, a young gentleman has just come into their lives and met Charlotta and fallen deeply in love with her. He escorted her to a ball and then was deeply chagrined to find out that she was engaged to be married and was not going to break that vow to Albert. So that was what we saw in Act 1. We see them fall in love, but that love be thwarted. And then we fast forward a little bit. Werther has had to endure watching Charlotta and Albert get married and live in their domestic bliss for the last three months. And that brings us up to where we are. You know, it's an
0: interesting opera in that unlike some operas, which have very complex plots with a lot of characters doing all kinds of mm-hmm. things. I think the complexity in this opera comes in the emotional lives and the motivations and responses that the various characters have, rather than twists and turns of plot. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it didn't take me very long to, to tell you what had happened uh, for a reason that it's, it is very simple. And I remember reading something about how one of the, the reasons that Massenet chose Verter as a subject was for that exact reason that it expressed one deep true emotional through line without kind of going off into a lot of different directions and I I find that kind of refreshing honestly it's there's not a lot to keep track of (laughs) right Um, you can concentrate on the emotions
0: Right, and speaking of which, what I neglected to mention earlier were the librettists, and I apologize for that. Edouard Blau, Paul Millet, and Georges Hartmann, and I thought of that when you were speaking because I have also read that this was one of the best librettos, or maybe the best mm-hmm. libretto that Massenet was ever given to work with. Three, three guys, but somehow they they really pulled it off and did an excellent job.
1: It's true, yeah. It, it's it's presenting this. Yeah, it's very tight, and and I think especially when we get past all the need for exposition and we move into act three it really becomes even more laser focused on on showing us these these two people's inner lives.
0: Yes and and another thing I think worth mentioning is that because of the sensation that this story was even at the end of the 19th century it was an incredibly familiar story and a lot of the people who would be showing up to see an opera would know the story already.
1: Yeah, and and I would say, This source material itself is mentioned and referenced throughout the 19th century in other works. It's one of those things that just kind of, it shows up as sort of a cultural touchstone. So it's not surprising that it would have been expected that most people would know this story. One of the famous instances, it shows up in Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. In Frankenstein? Yeah, it is one of the, (laughs) so (laughs) Frankenstein's monster finds a, a knapsack in the woods and it has three books in it and this is one of them and he he reads this book and he identifies with Verter's emotions especially around his loving people that he cannot really be a part of their family. Uh, Frankenstein, one of the main parts of the novel, he's watching this young family and learning English from them, and he's sort of spying on them because he's cast out from the world, and he wants nothing more than to be a part of that family. And he falls in love with the, the daughter, in a way, by watching her. But of course, when he reveals himself to them, he is... They're they're terrified and they run away and they abandon their house and that's part of what makes Frankenstein's monster lose his his humanity because he feels cast out and he identifies with Werther's love and desire for family in that novel.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. And that's early nineteenth century when Frankenstein is written, right? So twenty five years
1: or so after this comes out. Yeah, a little bit more than that, but it's but yeah, it's pretty early. So. it's uh, Mary Shelley wrote it when she was a teenager still. <laughs> so Frankenstein is written in 1823 by Mary Shelley when she's still a teenager. And this novel is 1774 is when Werther is first published, but it's actually heavily revised and published again in 1787, I believe, which I think is interesting because it's two years before the French Revolution. So the whole world is about to kind of blow up into some right. overflows of passion. Um, but yeah, so this is all kind of in the consciousness and in right. the literature, and that continues, really. You know, obviously Shelley Shelley's novel is, is earlier than that, but this gets gets referenced really throughout the 19th century. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, speaking of things that might be simpler, that was
0: a very awkward segue, but I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> Sophie shows up. And
1: she just brings
0: sunshine and flowers onto the stage, doesn't she?
1: She literally does. She literally brings flowers onto the stage. I love Sophie as a character. She's only eleven in the novel, but she they age her up in the opera. They make to,
0: her fifteen, so she yeah. can be played
1: by an adult woman. Right, <laughs> so she can be played by an adult, yeah, and they can have another another female role. But she also provides this sort of nice counterpoint to Charlotta because she's still a child, whereas Charlotta's had to kind of grow up prematurely. Right. But what I find very interesting about this little this little aria that she has is that that we will hear in a moment that we will hear in a moment (laughs) it's quite clear that she is flirting with verter a little bit Yeah, she wants
0: she wants him to dance with her with exactly yeah it's it's so so sweet
1: it's a little bit of a road not taken at least that's the way i look at it that if only verter could have gotten over his passion for charlotte and and not that I'm encouraging him to marry a 15 year old but it was less weird at that time well, wait a couple of years yeah there could have been a happy ending for everybody there but that was that was not to be and I
0: had read and but you can actually tell me for sure that that the role of Sophie was
1: beefed up for the opera yes it is she's she's has a pretty small role in the novel she's just another one of the children so one thing that we will want to talk about a little bit before we go into Sophie's Aria, which is really quite lovely, is the fact that Albert and Verter have remained friends this entire time. I think there's kind of an idea, because it happens off stage that maybe Verterre has been gone the three months of their marriage. He oh. hasn't. He's been hanging out with them the whole time. Oh, awkward. Yeah, he's actually... <laughs> in the novel, there's this very sort of innocent way in which he's, like, friends with both of them, and he hangs out with them all the time, and he's always going over to, like, tune her piano for her just so that he can hang out with them.
0: You're you're being literal, not metaphorical there.
1: Very literal. Okay. Um, (laughs) and so he and and Albert have really become friends. And something we won't play, but that we should mention is that Albert sees that Fairter is in love with Charlotta and he decides it's time to address it with him and he says, you know, if you were in love with her, I would totally understand. I'm in love with her. She's lovely. She's perfect. She's wonderful. Everyone um, loves her. <laughs> and so he, he really, yeah, I mean, that's quite true. Yeah. Um, he gives Vertair really an opportunity to kind of come clean and say, bro code, man, you're right. I think she's great, but I'm not going to step on your turf. But instead, Vertair lies to him and says, oh. no, I'm not in love with her, which is really the first time we see Vertair, do something like that, lie to, to people that he cares about. Instead of sharing his feelings. Instead yeah. of sharing his feelings, he really withholds them. Um, so that's kind of an interesting moment where his character experiences a bit of a turn.
0: Yes. And in fact, after Sophie has sung her beautiful song, which we will hear presently, Albert turns to Verter and says, well, my friend, you may, you know, you are, you're so gloomy all the time. <laughs> You may in fact find happiness and sometimes it passes our way with a smile on its lips and flowers in its hands.
1: Mm.
0: Hint, hint.
1: Somebody's doing a spot of matchmaking.
0: Right? Albert would I mean that would be perfect, right? It they would. could all
1: keep tuning
0: pianos together. <laughs> <laughs> One big happy family.
3: One big happy
1: family.
0: Well, let's hear Sophie <laughs> and her her joy in flowers.
2: Je te rejoins. choix.
0: Listening to opera for everyone, and this is Massenet's *Werther*. And a solution has just presented itself to all of Werther's problems. He know, he need not be lonely. He can still be a member of this blessed family that he adored so much right from the beginning. If only he would reciprocate the fondness that Sophie is showing for him. But you can just tell those two are not a match. No. She... <laughs> she is sunshine and flowers and he is dark introspection it's mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. not going to work for those two
1: he's sturm and drang yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no it's it's true as much as we would love for sophie to cheer him up i don't think that's that's going to be the ending there so
0: he's concerned about the fact that he's lied isn't he
1: yes so verter is all about sharing his true feelings so lying to somebody doesn't sit well with him, but he manages to to kind of talk himself out of feeling bad about his lie by saying he says. Didn't Remind I? us what the lie was. He lied to Albert and told him that he was not in love with Charlotte, even though to Albert it's clear that Verter has feelings for his wife. I mean, it's not something that Verter I think struggles to hide very much. So. It shouldn't surprise him that somebody has noticed, but it doesn't sit well with him that he's lied to Albert, who is his friend. I think he does truly care about him.
0: Albert a great
1: guy. Albert is a great guy, as just ask anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so he has this, this moment where he has a, a soliloquy, as it were, where he talks about Is it okay that I told this lie? And he says, didn't I tell the truth, the love that I have for her? Is it not the purest as well as the most holy in my soul? So he kind of allows his feelings to sort of cleanse him of that lie in a way. Some would call it
0: rationalization.
1: Very much so. But it's funny, it reminds me a little bit of our Timon and Pumbaa characters saying, what's holy to me is celebrating all the good things that God created, like wine. (laughs) And for Werther, yes. he's like, what purifies me and makes me holy is the love I have for Charlotta.
0: Albert's wife. My good buddy yeah. Albert's wife, right.
1: Right. <laughs> so it's it's true. I mean you can you can uh, absolve yourself of all of your sins if you just think hard enough, I think, is kind of what he's doing there. And of course, while he is having this this introspection, he he's he's thinking a lot about should I even be here? which is good. I'm glad he's thinking about that because he's been hanging around this this young married couple and he's a little bit of... Third wheel. He's the skunk at the garden party a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so he's starting to ask himself, well, i figured this out. Should I even stay? Right. And Charlotta comes in and, and she is doing her own introspection. She's in
0: a little bit of an awkward spot too. She
1: is. Well, I mean... Part of the problem with Charlotta, I would say, is that we never really know how she's feeling, at least not to me in in Act 1 and 2. It's really hard to get a read on her. Because I think she's often telling the male characters what they want to hear, whether it's- That
0: is totally- Yeah. That's what women were meant to do. They, exactly. they do their duty, and they tell the men what they want to hear.
1: Exactly. So she tells Albert, no, I'm happy. I don't regret anything. And right. then when Averter is expressing his emotions to her, I think she she kind of lets him down easy. But she doesn't close the door. She never closes the door. Not really.
0: Well, she does say, it's interesting. There, there's She does some interesting things. And these are in the pieces that we're going to hear in just a moment, where she says, Verter, isn't there any other woman in this world? Mm. You have all this love in your heart. <laughs> isn't there another woman who can be the object of your affection? And... Well, we know the answer to that, right? He's Mm. not hearing any of it. But she doesn't tell him, okay, this whole thing where we are all hanging out together, it's got to stop. She doesn't do that.
1: No, and she never says, I don't love you, either, which I find fascinating. Because if she said to him, I don't love you, I love my husband, period, I think that it's possible he would have heard that. But instead, she talks about her love for Albert's duty, I think. you know, And she really expresses to him. And because he knows that she made this vow to her mother, he knows that their marriage isn't just a love match and that's enough to kind of keep the door open for him.
0: Well that's it. She does she she does keep the door open just a tiny bit. She just gives him this little bit of hope which is arguably cruel.
1: It's true. and there's been a lot of analysis, especially of the novel in recent times, looking at her character. This is not something that really was done a lot. There's a lot of there's a lot of critical analysis of Verter. There have been many, many, many pages written about Verter as a character, but not a lot about charlotta until the last fifty or so years. But now people are examining, is she a femme fatale? I've read some things about does she, lead him on. How much culpability does she bear in all of this? And I think in some ways it's a little bit unfair because I think she's trapped in a really difficult situation and doesn't always really know her own heart or her own mind. But she doesn't close the door here. Even though he's threatened suicide, she doesn't close the door. And so we're about to hear a little bit more of that. But it does become clear to her, I think, that things are reaching a place where it is not, it's not okay for him to be as in her life. As, but she doesn't as
0: send is. him away forever, does she?
1: No, of course not. She sends him away only until Christmas. So it's about, I think, September now. So she says, come back when the children have finally finished learning their Christmas carol. Oh, dear. <laughs> in, yeah. case you, in case you didn't know that there was going to be a Christmas scene. Yeah, she says. she says, stay away for a little while and then come back. And I think she hopes that maybe he will master his passion for her and she perhaps for him.
0: And they can all just have game night together. Yeah. Yeah. And she can,
1: he can date Sophie and everything will be fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but things, things are perhaps not going to, to work out that simply.
0: No. And he lets her know, I believe, that he may or may not be back at Christmas. And she should be sad for him if he doesn't return, because you know what that means.
1: Yes, this is, I would like to, I feel like I want a sound effect for every time Veritere threatens suicide (laughs) in order to manipulate Charlotta. Because I think every time it happens, it's more manipulative. Like, he's done it, this is the twice, this twice that he's done this, where he says, all right, you're sending me away, but if you never hear from me again, we'll know whose fault it is. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Veritere.
0: opera for everyone and we have just concluded the second act of Werther by Massinet and we're ready to launch into the third act and Kathleen I think the the mood shifts a bit with act three doesn't it?
1: Yes I would say everything becomes much more focused and act three is really where you get to see Charlotta really shine and it's really just a Charlotta and Werther deep emotional exploration. (laughs) Yeah, and we get to
0: understand a little bit more what she's thinking about, don't we? Because she's perusing old letters. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, we definitely get more interiority from her, and also we get to see her express more emotions besides just duty. I think, you know, and and should I be following my duty or should I not? Um, She starts to really kind of unravel a little bit here, which is interesting for us to watch. Yes, she's been corresponding with Verter for quite some time. It is Christmas Eve is where Wait, wait, back
0: up for just a second. She's been, she sent him away, (laughs) but they've been corresponding.
1: Yeah, which I I think maybe doesn't count. (laughs) If you're trying to avoid having an affair and you send your potential lover away, but then you keep up love letters with him. I think that, I'm not sure that counts.
0: <laughs> yeah, and kind of makes you wonder in, in what manner she receives these letters and how it is that mm-hmm. the household staff and her husband mm-hmm. are not wondering about this.
1: Yeah, because it, be, it becomes clear in this act that Albert does not know that they've been corresponding. And as I, as I noted, it's, it's Christmas Eve, so they've been corresponding since September when he went away. Christmas Eve. Ooh, the
0: appointed day.
1: <laughs> the children, <laughs> I hope they're ready.
0: <laughs> oh, I wasn't thinking about that appointment because she said he had to go away and yes. and he could come back on Christmas. And yes. he, he said, maybe I will, maybe I won't.
1: Yes, and he, he keeps that up here. So, so Charlotta is recounting to us and what we're about to listen to some of the passages from these letters that she's been receiving, and she's been reading them over and over again. As a side note, either in in Massenet's time or in the time of the original novel, it would have been pretty inappropriate for them to be exchanging letters. For, for, for a man and a woman who were not engaged or married to be exchanging letters or, or not related would be considered really inappropriate during both of those time periods, but especially in Goethe's time. So there's, yeah, this is some funny business.
0: Right. Well, that's why (laughs) she must be hiding it from her husband, because it's it's the next closest thing to having an actual physical affair. Mm -hmm.
1: But not to chide them too much and forget the kind of beauty of it. At the same time, there's a loveliness to the aria that we're that opens this that we're going to listen to the letter aria which is very famous of course it's it's, a, it's beautiful that they have continued to fall in love but at a distance and through letters and the way that she has memorized these passages and and the letters she just holds them to her heart it's clear that they really do care about each other and that his absence is really weighing upon her so i
0: have a bad feeling about
1: this though <laughs> Okay. It's true. Shall, well,
0: shall we hear Charlotte sing? I think we should. Yeah, aria?
1: let's hear what's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you have listened to charlotte's letter aria from werther by massenet and she doesn't just sit there alone all night in her home her sister comes to visit
1: yes yeah, sophie is is a little worried about poor charlotte alone on christmas eve rereading her lover's letters <laughs> so, so she, she
0: sophie brings sunshine wherever she goes she does
1: or she tries she tries to she cheer tries. her up yeah so sophie comes by and and her and charlotte talk and and she it becomes clear to Sophie as well that these letters have been exchanged and and she sort Ah.
3: of
1: it becomes clear to her that Veriter and and Charlotta are in love for the first time which is sad because Sophie of course you know she tried her best with Veriter (laughs) but did not work
0: yeah it's it is sad for her because she realizes that the man's hung up on her sister even though her sister's married you know I think Sophie's gonna bounce back
1: I hope so (laughs)
0: <laughs> of all the people in this show, Sophie's the one I'm least worried about. Uh, you're completely
1: <laughs> right about that. But yeah, so she tries to convince Charlotta to to come home to to the family home and not be alone on Christmas Eve and not sit there just wondering what's happening because. One of the things that we find out in the letter aria is that the last letter that Verter sent to her, he is threatening suicide again and saying, I know I'm supposed to be there on Christmas Eve, but I might not be there. And if I'm not, you'll know why.
0: Weep for me. Weep for Mm -hmm. me. Yes. (laughs) Well, (laughs) don't keep us in suspense. Does he show up? Well,
1: (laughs) yes. Verter. all of a sudden, (laughs) oui c'est moi. He is standing sure, in the yeah. audience. <laughs> right Sophie has gone off after not being able to convince Charlotta, and then all of a sudden, Verter is there. And so
0: it's just the two of them alone.
1: And you know what that means. Passionate Aria is is on its way.
0: Yes, yes, but he's um he's a little down in the dumps, I believe. Well, he's not showing up with <laughs> smiles.
1: Yes, yeah, so he does. He hasn't really used this time away to get over her. One one knows that for sure. And she is still married, so the situation looks a little bit hopeless. So in I think Verter starts to be a little bit questionable here, as much <laughs> as he loves her. We talked a little bit before about the fact that he loves two things I think about her he loves the poetic side of her that's mm-hmm. represented by the fact that they they translate poetry together and they talk about his poetry and, and books and in the novel that's you know there's a lot of they play music together they dance together so there's that side of her but then he also loves the the dutiful domestic side of her he falls in love with her while watching her take care of the children and in order to possess her, he has to destroy one half of her. He has to destroy that domestic, dutiful side of her that that would never hurt her husband, would never leave her husband. And he's been reluctant to really push her. Right. He's left instead of done that, but here he comes back and he really does push her, and because he's become frenzied, and he starts, I think, at least in the production I saw, he starts to drive her a little bit mad. Because he is so insistent and so emotional. And there's a lot of emotional blackmail, threats of suicide. And she, I mean, that's pushing her over the edge, too. We're hurtling down the train tracks here quite quickly. Right. Well, and, I'm, and I don't know if this is
0: the way you would interpret it. But when she turns to this poetry that he had begun mm-hmm. translating, it almost seems like she's trying to redirect his thoughts Like, what about these beautiful poems you were translating? Mm -hmm. That's something that we can still Mm -hmm. safely talk about. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and I I think there's a part of her that wants to reestablish what they were before when things were a little bit less frenzied. When he could come over to the house and he was friends with her and Albert and the children, and he was a part of their lives without being this sort of maddening presence that wants her to leave her husband. Which is just
0: incredible. Comprehensible to me when you've got this all together with a person who has repeatedly been threatening suicide. But but I he does sing a beautiful song yes, about this, is, this poetry.
1: Yeah, this is probably my favorite piece in the whole the whole opera. It's oh. absolutely gorgeous. And it's Ossian. Can you tell us anything about that? There's a there's a lot of reference in the novel to both Ossian and Homer. Oh.
0: You know, when Greg is co-hosting he always has a Homeric reference so
1: we were close (laughs) there's a whole storyline in the book about him him and Homer he's obsessed with Homer but he only reads the parts of Homer that fit with his philosophy (laughs) Uh, sure why not yeah yeah so Ossian was a Scottish nationalist poet there's a lot in the novel about both Homer and Ossian and there's this, this sort of, they called it Ossian. I'm not going to be able to say this right, Ossionomie, like uh, mania for Ossian in French. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, the Germans, especially later on, once Romanticism uh, took off, were really obsessed with this this Scottish nationalist poet, Ossian. And so that becomes the foundation of this this particular aria, that this is poetry that they were reading and translating together.
2: Oh, bien souvent mon rêve s'adonna sur l'aile
0: Gorgeous, simply gorgeous. And after all that beautiful poetry, Mm -hmm. has it had the desired effect of seducing Charlotte into forgetting about all of the things that keep her away from him? So I
1: suppose to her credit, no. It's clear that she is swayed very much and she feels a lot of conflicting emotions and she's very upset, but she still doesn't tell him she's going to leave her husband for him. And he rushes out, but not before he well, he rushes out the door and then instantly scribbles a letter because we're big into letters here. Yeah. And sends it by messenger to Albert, who has come in right after Verter has left and finds his wife very distraught. Right. Uh oh. Uh oh, indeed. And Albert realizes that Verter has been there, realizes that she is in love with Verter. Yeah. And that she is emotionally unfaithful, and then- And Albert's such a good guy, how's he
0: gonna (laughs) take it?
1: (laughs) I guess you can push people only so far. So Verter's letter arrives for Albert, and Verter's letter asks Albert if he can borrow a pair of pistols. Oh no. Verter apparently does not have his own pistols. And Albert receives this letter, no context, but he knows his wife's very upset, and he puts two and two together. Oh. And he says, oh, sure, go ahead and take those pistols.
0: Suspecting what they might be used for.
1: Yes, which, of course, Charlotta drives her mad. She's she's very upset at the idea that, that Verter's suicide, which has been hanging over the play and, and over her for some time, seems really imminent. and And that is... Facilitated by her husband. Right. Oh, dear. And that is... That is how we end Act 3. She rushes off to prevent this suicide, but she's very afraid she's going to be too late.
0: And Albert, we don't think he follows her anything.
1: Nope. That is the last we hear of of Albert. So
0: on to Act 4. Is she too late? Yes
1: and no. He is still alive, but he has shot himself. Oh, a
0: mortal wound?
1: Uh, Yes, a mortal wound. (laughs) Um, oh but but it's opera. It is opera. So I'm gonna guess he doesn't die instantly. No, we have all of Act Four to get him <laughs> get him to the grave. Oh, <laughs> poor verter opera. and poor Verter poor Charlotte. Yeah, really, poor everybody, except Sophie. Oh. Sophie's gonna be fine. <laughs> good, that's good. But yeah, so so Act Four is entirely focused on Verter's death and is is the shortest little snippet of time too. It's really really focused on the suicide and the aftermath in that moment, and is just Charlotte and Verter.
0: And does he have any compunctions about killing himself? Because there is real moral
1: prohibition against taking one's own life. It's true. I think, especially in the novel, and I think you see this reflected in, in the opera as well, Verter is, I wouldn't say he's irreligious, But it's clear that his philosophy and his um, deeply emotional reaction to life is really the way that he thinks he should be living his life. And it's not necessarily informed by traditional religious values, but it does hang over him that if he dies, by suicide, he wouldn't be able to be buried in consecrated ground, that that maybe she wouldn't be able to visit his grave. And I think he is, in a way, afraid of that and afraid of his immortal soul. And I think you see that with the Noel song that the children sing comes back in act four as he's dying. So he's hearing the children singing, and it is Christmas Eve. There's this deeply religious undertone to everything, and and it's there in the background for sure. And in the novel, this is probably the right time to talk about something in the novel. He does talk a lot about suicide throughout, and there's a lot of musings about whether it's right or wrong.
0: More so than even in the opera libretto.
1: I would say so, yeah. Yeah, there's oh, okay. there's conversations throughout about suicide, even very early in the book. And several other characters are rumored to have committed suicide. It's kind of in the background a lot. So, one of the things that happened after this book came out and was such a sensation, which you talked about in the beginning, there began to be a rash of copycat suicides. Oh, no. Yeah, so there's no way to know how many people this was actually affecting. It just became kind of a sensation in the press. But young men who were crossed in love, were committing suicide and frequently it was known that they had read the book or in one case a young man drowned himself and the book was found in his pocket. And so this became such a thing that in several European countries they banned the book including Denmark and I can't remember what because other countries. Because of
0: the, of the justification mm-hmm. it provided for suicide yeah. and, and thereby the inducement to. Mm-hmm.
1: They considered it to be a public menace that really it was, it was encouraging people to take out their feelings in that way. Young people, especially, and this was all young, young men, right? Yeah, which is kind of interesting. So it's even, even to this day, some psychologists call it the Verter effect. When someone talks about suicide, or suicide is is talked about in the press, there is often a correspondence in people reading those stories or hearing about them who were perhaps already contemplating suicide, taking the step towards suicide. So that's one of the reasons why you see when, when the New York Times reports about it, they're very careful that it's not in the headline, that there's all sorts of disclaimers where they give you the hotline to call, et cetera. Et cetera. That actually all stems from what they call the Verter effect. Oh, from
0: Goethe's original mm-hmm. publication in yeah. the late 18th century. Wow. Wow.
1: <laughs> well. Yes. Well, okay,
0: back to our character, Verter and doubtless some beautiful songs with Charlotte.
1: Yes, they get get a good amount of time to say goodbye to each other, as sad as that is.
0: Well, let's see how much we can hear of that, but I think we should just mention again what you said a little bit earlier about the the children's song. We don't see the children, do we, at the end? It's just the two Mm -hmm. characters.
1: No, we just hear them. So we hear them through the window, basically, is is the idea, is that we're hearing them below in the street caroling.
0: Celebrating Christmas Mm -hmm. while he's dying of his self-inflicted wounds, Mm -hmm. and she's weeping over him mm-hmm. and it's interesting that those are kind of bookends for this mm-hmm. show that the children begin singing the Christmas carols in July <laughs> and and then ultimately here on Christmas Eve
3: mm-hmm. Yeah. they
0: close out the show
1: yeah and I don't know I think it's a bit ambiguous what the meaning of that is supposed to be. I think you can take it several different ways. Could be, is this his redemption, that he's hearing the voice of children and the voice of God and Jesus' forgiveness and rebirth as perhaps a consolation? Or is it a world full of life that he's now closed off from? Is it a reminder of the fact that he's leaving behind the children, which he cared about? I think there's a lot of different ways that you can take this. But the juxtaposition of the children singing Christmas carols and him singing about his own death is is really striking. Right.
0: And Charlotte, will she survive this? Who knows?
1: (laughs) This is one of the great ambiguities, I think, of this play. Some productions stage it that she perhaps takes her own life as well, or that she contemplates it. In the novel, it, it's left ambiguous as well. She she doesn't kill herself in the novel, but there's an idea that his death affects her so deeply that her health is affected. And people mm. are afraid that perhaps she won't survive long after him, that she'll die of a broken heart.
0: Well, that would be operatic as well. I, and I think with all the darkness that we've talked about in this story, I think it's worth mentioning again the music is gorgeous. It
1: is beautiful, it really is and it's it's true, I mean it is a very dark you can understand why the opera comique perhaps said no first yes (laughs) (laughs) I get their position but we're we're glad that they decided to to accept it after all because it is absolutely beautiful
0: yes well Kathleen thank you so much for all of your research and your insights and your help with this gorgeous opera and we'll go out with Werther and Charlotte in act four the final act of Massenet's Werther thank you Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright.
1: Joined by Kathleen Vandewill.
0: If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging.
1: But everyone loves a good story.
0: And a story set to music is even better.
1: Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe...
3: Opera is for everyone.